Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Leviticus chapter 2. Leviticus chapter 2. And we've read the whole chapter a couple of times, but uh, we want to pick up with our uh, lesson and comments on verse 11. It says in verse 11, Leviticus 2 verse 11, No meat offering which ye shall bring unto the Lord shall be made with leaven. For ye shall burn no leaven, nor any honey, in any offering of the Lord made by fire. As for the oblation of the firstfruits, ye shall offer them unto the Lord, but they shall not be burnt on the altar for sweet savor. And every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt, neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from the meat offering. With all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. And if thou offer a meat offering of thy first fruits unto the Lord, thou shalt offer for the meat offering of thy first fruits green ears of corn, dried by, by the fire, even corn beaten out of the full ears. And thou shalt put oil upon it and lay frankincense thereon. It is a meat offering. And the priest shall burn the memorial of it, part of the beaten corn thereof, and part of the oil thereof, with all the frankincense thereof. It is an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Now, if you notice verse 1 of chapter 3, it speaks of the peace offering, which we won't go into at this present time, because we're still studying what the meat offering. Now, remember uh, the oblation or offering or meat offering. the definition of that means the act of offering something such as worship or thanks to a deity. And of course, we had those that worshipped uh, and offered those sacrifices to false gods and false deities. But now we pick up our comments with verse 11. And it says, No meat offering which ye shall bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for ye shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering of the Lord made by fire. Now, we're sticking completely to the notes that I uh, compiled in the commentary. I have it in a fold, not a folder, but in a fiberback covering, all of them from Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, uh, that I wrote out notes when I was going to seminary. And I had some of the best teachers that you could find in the seminary. So I'm sticking to these notes and trying to share them with you because I believe every word in them is valuable for us. Now, when we think of no leaven, leaven is always a type of sin. Leaven sours that which it comes in contact with. Leaven puffs puffs up. Let's think of, first of all, Leaven is a type of sin. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I've given you this reference time and time again. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to look at verse six, verses 6 through 8. And this is Paul's reply to uh, one that had been taken in a very grievous sin. In fact, he mentions earlier in the first part of chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that uh, it was such a sin as not so much as was named among the Gentiles. The word Gentile there means the heathen. 
The heathen wouldn't even do what these Corinthians had done. And so he says, Your glory is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? And he's speaking concerning the church here at Corinth. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, here's where you get the fact that Christ is symbolical of our Passover. Our Passover is sacrificed for us. Now look at verse 8. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness. See (coughs) what leaven is characterized with? Malice and wickedness. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the the leaven is symbolical of evil, how it permeates, and it's, uh, of course, a type of sin. And it, we've already stated that it sours that which it comes in contact with. We know it sours the dough, don't we? When you put leaven in the bread and the dough, it, that it sours that. That's why they call it sourdough bread, you know. And anyway, uh, it puffs up. It rises, doesn't it? And uh, this typical and symbolical of Christ, so that there was nothing sour nor puffed up about the man Christ Jesus. Nothing in the world that leaven could be associated with the person of Christ. And uh, in Him, everything was pure, and it was solid, and it was genuine. His Word might cut to the quick, but it never sours. The Bible says that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And verse 13 says, "...neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do." And by the way, we do have to do with Him. We're going to have to answer to God. So, uh, we find that His Word may cut, but it's never sour. And His style was never puffed up above the occasion. Christ's style was always uh, equal to the occasion. Whatever He faced, He was never uh, taking the place of trying to exalt Himself or magnify Himself. He did the work of the Father. And He uh, many times would say after He had healed or cleansed or whatever, see that you tell no man about it. Uh, The prophet uh, Isaiah said, He shall not lift up His voice nor cry, neither shall His voice be heard in the streets as to you know try to uh, get attention. And he goes on to say, A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench. So we find that Jesus certainly was never puffed up. And then the, the second thing about this passage we just read, verse 11, no honey. There was to use no honey. Now honey was an imitation sweetness, and Christ needs no imitations to sweeten His life. His life is pure. Honey sours when it's exposed to the elements. When it's exposed to the element, it sours things. And then we find in verse 12 and 13, and we've already read it, and just follow on down with our 
lesson because we're talking about salt. There's no salt that would be lacking in any of these meat offerings. He says, With all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. Now, salt kills any corrupting influence. In the book of Jude, chapter, uh, chapter 1, because there's only one chapter, and verses 14 and 15 of the first chapter, <laughs> since there's only one, in Jude, verse 14 and 15 says this, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of thee, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints, now look, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now notice verse 14 again. Again it says, Behold, the Lord cometh with... Notice that word with. With ten thousands of His saints. So it's talking about the Lord's second coming not, not the rapture, but in Revelation 19, when He comes with His saints to execute judgment. Because when He comes at the rapture, He comes to take uh, resurrect the dead in Christ, those who sleep in Jesus, and rapture those who are still living at that particular time. So when it says, Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied of these, he's prophesying of these <coughs> wicked people that he just described earlier, And he said, the Lord is coming with ten thousands of His saints. And you'll find over in the book of Revelation chapter 19 where the Lord is coming and the armies of heaven follow Him. The armies of heaven are those saints that have been taken on to heaven and already been raptured, already in the presence of God, already experienced the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19 again earlier. And then they're coming back to this earth. The Lord is not through with this earth. People think, well, you know, that God's going to end this earth. He said it's going to remain. But it's going to be cleansed by fire. And it's going to be a, an earth that's going to be fit to live on after He gets through with it. And when He comes to rule, it will have the one King of kings and Lord of lords, and everything will be like it ought to be. And it's never been by the hands of Men being rulers to this world because men are corruptible and wicked and sinful and they don't know how to rule. We've had dictators, but they're evil dictators. But his theocracy, and by the way, it won't be a democracy. It'll be a theocracy. But we'll have the right kind of a king and we won't have to worry about being dictated by an evil dictator. We'll have the best in the world. Best in, in the whole creation of God. So that'll be something to look forward to, wouldn't it? So, uh, what we're saying here then <laughs> is that salt, salt has a corrupting, kills any corrupting influence and all of Christ's words were seasoned with salt. They were not corrupt. <clears throat> By the way, the Scripture tells us let our words be seasoned with salt as well. And after 2,000 years, not a word he spoke needs to be forgotten or forgiven or modified or corrected or erased. Think of that. Not a word that Jesus ever spoke needs to be forgotten, forgiven, modified, corrected, or erased. 
Wouldn't it be nice if we could say that about ourselves? But we cannot. By the time the day gets through, usually we've said something we didn't need to say. And something that could have, could very well uh, and most likely needed to be forgotten. And a lot of it need to be forgiven. And some of it need to be modified and corrected. You, you see these uh, senators and all these uh, uh, congressmen, before the day's over, they're trying to correct something they said early in the morning or halfway through the, the session. Well, I didn't mean it that way. Well, you know, because a lot of times we don't say really what we mean. And that's why we need forgiveness in one another. And that's why brethren need to be not so quick to accuse another brother when he's misspoken a word. Because we need to be forgiving. Uh, I know many times I've said something that I, I could have said another way and hoping that someone didn't take it the wrong way. And sometimes I've apologized to people and say, I hope you wasn't offended at certain thing I said and mentioned it to them and said, oh, I didn't think anything about it. And I worried two days about it. Maybe three. I worried all week. And try to meet. I say, I've got to see that brother or sister before church next time and tell them I didn't mean to hurt their feelings and uh, certain things. And not that I apologize for preaching the Word, but sometimes our comments are not just preaching the Word. We make comments just off the, off the uh, way without thinking about it. And uh, sometimes we need to think much more before we speak. And that's pretty hard for some of us to do when we speak real fast, isn't it? So anyway, uh, we find that Jesus didn't have to do that. And we find how different are the words that we speak. Look in Colossians 4, verse 6 and Colossians 3, verse 16. Colossians 3, verse 16, it says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. That's what it needs to be. But then think of Colossians 4, verse 6. It says, Let... Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. So when we answer in grace, <coughs> and it may be seasoned with salt, but we need to know how to answer every man. I remember a sermon I preached in Mount Pleasant, Texas in 1950. Seven, 1957. And we got, uh, there was a couple lived across the, the street that went to, to a holiness church. And they were dear friends of ours. They prayed for us all the time and would try to help us when we needed. We didn't have anything. One time the, the uh, man brought it over his old overcoat because I had to preach funerals out there and it was cold and cold in the winter time, and he brought in this old overcoat and gave it to me. Another time, they brought us over a, a whole roast to, for, to feed the family. But anyway, I got him to come to church one time, and I preached on Matthew chapter 1, where Jesus says that he, when he, he shall save His people from their sins. And I talked about He, he not only saves the sinner, but He saves His people those that are already His, those that are Christians. And He said, 
Brother Joyce, he said, when you got through that sermon, you just like rubbing salt in all my wounds on my back. And I didn't intend it for him especially, but I preached to a whole congregation. But when I said his people from their sins, and I preached on the sins of the saints, and I'm telling you, he was a wonderful old gentleman, but he, he said, he didn't apologize, he knew I didn't apologize for the preaching, but he, he knew that it was a sermon of, uh, that ought to be preached to all of God's children when we go the wrong direction. Alright, verse 14, it tells us, uh, <clears throat> and when thou offer a meat offering unto, of thy first fruits unto the Lord, <clears throat> later on we'll talk about Offerings of the first fruits, but right here it just mentions the first fruits as a meat offering. Uh, thou shalt offer for the meat offering of thy first fruits green ears of corn dried by the fire, even corn beaten out of full ears. Now, when we think of green ears of corn, uh, the green ears of corn speak of the best corn, also that which is alive but it was to be dried by fire. And this speaks of trial and temptation and judgment. And beaten corn speaks of Calvary. Jesus said in John chapter 12, let me read this for you. John chapter 12, verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And he was using this as a, as the, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified, verse 23. And then he says this verse I just read. And he's speaking of his own death. And so, uh, this beaten corn that Leviticus speaks of, uh, chapter 2, verse 14, notice, Ear, green ears of corn dried by the fire, even corn beaten out of full ears. Beaten out. And this beaten corn speaks of Calvary's cross. And this is what Jesus endured for, for us, that He might save us. And I told you one time, and probably many times, that I have a sermon on what if Jesus had not died. It says, And thou shalt put oil upon it, and lay frankincense thereon, it is a meat offering. Then the priest shall burn the memorial of it, part of the beaten corn thereof, and part of the oil thereof, with all the frankincense thereof. It is an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Now then, uh, that uh, will conclude the uh, meat offering of chapter 2. So let's look at chapter 3 and we'll try to get into the peace offering. If you'll notice, the very first verse speaks of the peace offering. <coughs> For those that have not been here, by the way, there's a few that have not been here since we started. But remember we pointed out in chapter 1 the burnt offering. The whole burnt offering. And we anticipate talking about the sin offering. This is a peace offering in chapter 3. But when you get to chapter 4, you'll have the sin offering. And then you'll have the trespass offering. But in order to show you the difference, and for some that have not been here, most of you that have been here have heard it time and time again, we speak of the burnt offering and the sin offering over in the New Testament. 
And uh, we gave you Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2. And I'd like for those that were not here to turn there, and probably all of us could do it. But Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2. I want you to see a verse that includes both of these offerings. And you can see why it's worded this way. <clears throat> Ephesians 5 verse 2. Now, as you look at it, it says, And walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us. Now, watch this very carefully. And hath given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. Now, circle for us and then circle to God. To God for a sweet-smelling savor. Now, what do you see here? That Christ loved us and he given, He's given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice. This was a sin offering because we had, He had to offer Himself a sacrifice for our sins. And there are so many New Testament Scriptures that it would be too lengthy to give you all of them to show that He did sacrifice Himself for our sins. And most of us wouldn't even question that at all. But then notice it says an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. <clears throat> now when it says to God, he's talking about the whole burnt offering of Christ's death and sacrifice that you find in Leviticus chapter 1. And it shows us that he gave himself wholly to God, even unto death on the cross. And as that death on the cross included giving Himself for our sins, it also included His burnt sacrifice to God. Offering Himself totally and completely unto God. Now then, if you just read that verse in the New Testament, Ephesians 5 verse 2, and had no knowledge of what it really means you couldn't get into the depth of the fact that there was a part of this sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary that was totally for God. It was a whole burnt offering. Leviticus chapter 1. But also, when you get to chapter 4 of Leviticus, you'll find that he's talking about a sin offering, and that's for us. So all of the these offerings have to do with Christ. <clears throat> death on the cross, except the meat offerings, they have to do, of course, with His life and His service to God, presenting Himself to God wholly and completely. But uh, meat offerings different. They, it, meat offering was a bloodless sacrifice. But the other offerings are blood sacrifices. And so where it comes to the shedding of blood, it all is symbolical of Christ and His death on the cross. And we'll find that there's shedding of blood in all these others. Even the peace offering that we'll study in the, in the uh, third chapter, you'll find that there was bloodshed. <coughs> so, what do you draw from this now? You can see that all of these offerings point to Christ in some way or another. The meat offering to His life and service. And so many things that we've been trying to point out 
and have pointed out about him not being puffed up and not having to recall a word and being perfect in his life. And he was also perfect in his death except for the fact that at one time he took upon himself all of our sins. And there he offered himself for us and he offered himself to God. And in Isaiah 53 it says, He, God, He, the Father, shall see the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied. Satisfied with that whole burnt offering that Christ would offer up. Someone says, well, you know, I just study the New Testament. Well, friend, you don't understand the New Testament unless you've studied the Old Testament. You won't understand it fully. In fact, I've given you a Scripture time and time again, the authority for studying the Old Testament. Where is it? Anyone remember? Romans chapter what? 15 and verse 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime, and by the way, Paul was referring to the Old Testament because the New Testament was just being made up. He was just now writing Romans chapter 15 verse 4. I think I do have the right verse. And it says, Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. What? That we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Did I get the right verse? Okay. So anyway, I knew I quoted it right, but I didn't know if I got exactly the right place. But See, that's the authority. When people say, I've studied the New Testament, did you study that verse? <coughs> well, what did it say? That the things written aforetime were written for our what? Learning. That we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures. The Scriptures of the Old Testament comfort us and teach us patience. Uh, even Jude refers to the patience of Job. He says, you've heard of the patience of Job? And he says, you've seen the end of the Lord? What God did for Job at the end? <coughs> so, even the writers of the New Testament verify the fact that you need to study the Old Testament. So when someone comes along and says, I just study the New Testament. I don't know anything about the Old and I don't pay any attention to that Old, that old Testament. They don't have a basis for their statement, hardly. Because you need to study the whole Bible. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. And every verse of it. The Bible says every word of God is pure and He is a shield to them that put their trust in Him. And further it says, Add not to His words lest He reprove thee and thou be found a liar. So we're not to add to His words. We're not to take away from His words either in the book of Revelation the last chapter. So all of God's Word. In fact, I think I've shown you before the difference between the word seed and seeds. S-E-E-D, four little letters. And S-E-E-D-S. And God makes a distinction in His Word between seed, singular, and seeds, plural. Did you know that? Where do you find it? Galatians what? Galatians 3.16 Turn to Galatians. <clears throat> I want you to get this. I've taught you this time and time again, and so that's why I can rest assured you're pretty well versed in the Bible. Galatians 
Most of us know John 3.16, don't we? Most of us know uh, Genesis 3.15 where it was promised the promised seed. Genesis 3.15. And by the way, these are three important verses. Genesis 3.15, John 3.16, and Galatians 3.16. Now notice what it says here. Now to Abraham and his seed, notice S-E-E-D, where the promises made. He saith not unto seeds. Paul, what are you talking about? What's the difference? You mean God is real particular about between seed and seeds? Paul says He is. As of many, but as one, and to thy seed which is Christ. <coughs> so what He says to Abraham, to thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He wasn't talking about uh, Isaac or Jacob or Judah or some of the offspring or some of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. He was talking about that ultimate seed that would come from the seed of Abraham and the seed of David and right on down pointing to Christ because it's in Him that all families of the earth is blessed. Not in any of the other uh, ancestry of Christ or the descendants of Abraham. So you see how particular the word is? Some people say, well, you know what difference does it make if you just paraphrase it and com- make comments that, that mean f- a phraseology? Well, phraseology sometimes is wrongly phrased too. <laughs> but the... Word of God is not wrong. So, I said that to encourage you to take every word of God as it is. In the King James Version of the Bible, by the way. And then you won't have to worry about it. Someone says it's too hard to understand. I don't find it hard to understand between seed and seeds when Paul said there's a difference. And says, you know, he says one is pointing to Christ. And many and few, or many and one, is what he really says. I mean, you know, a fifth grader can understand that. A child that can just read and write. You can understand that when you have second or third grader. And they understand the difference between singular and plural. And especially as they grow up and get in, into high school, they know the difference in these things. And if children can understand it, what about grown-ups that complain, you know, I just can't understand the Bible. Well, you know what's wrong with you? You don't study it enough. If you study it, you'll understand it. And uh, it's not difficult if you have trouble with some words or some uh, statements that are made. Just go to a little deeper study and you'll find out exactly what it means, what it's talking about. It won't be difficult. So, just delve into studying the Bible. And the Bible tells us as preachers and deacons and teachers, especially to study to show thyself approved. And Christians, it says, study to show thyself approved unto God. 
A workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. <coughs> you can get the word so mixed up that no one can understand it. It's like a mulligan stew, isn't it? You don't know where you're tasting carrots or beets or, or celery or whatever. Maybe mutton and beef and pork or whatever. I don't know what all they throw in there. But anyway, you've heard me talk about how I want my food on my plate when I go down and have fellowship. I don't want to just all throw it together. Can you imagine going, getting you a good steak over here at K. Bob's and you get a good steak or somewhere, if you can get a good one there. And then you get that, that good steak and they pour gravy all over it. And then they put your mashed potatoes right in the middle of that gravy. Now, I don't say they serve it that way. I'm just saying I wouldn't want it. And then, then they say, well, you know, what do you want? Let's put your salad on there too. And then some pasoli or a bowl of beans. And then say, what do you want for dessert? Oh, peach or pear, peach cobbler put in in the middle. Well, you're going to have a cup of coffee? Well, just pour that.